back to a better world. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and we're very glad you're joining us again today. Today, we're going to have a very interesting show. We're going to be picking up on several of the themes that are so important to us here at A Better World, and I have invited two very special guests, also very dear friends of mine and colleagues, who have been on the path for just same amount of time, if not longer, than myself, and have brought so much to the table for us to understand and to help us digest where we are at this point in time, historically and in a sense anthropologically, as well as to take steps, and they identify very several steps, I should say, that help us with solutions to the current issues facing us regarding consciousness, as well as climate. In addition, another subject of today's show, we'll be looking at and reviewing regarding uh, U.S. history. Uh, One of our guests, Connie uh, Baxter-Marlowe, has a very interesting history in her own family that she'll be also speaking of because that is part of their collective work together. And we'll go into that. They're using film, video, etc., to help make clear some of the understandings that are not common regarding our U.S. history. So on that note, a couple of words about each of our guests today. Uh, They are a couple, and one of the loveliest couples you'll ever meet. Uh, Connie Baxter-Marlowe is an author, filmmaker, photographer, and futurist. Her uplifting worldview offers practical means of transcending the current paradigm through absolute trust in a conscious, loving, abundant universe. She has co-authored the book, The Trust Frequency, with Andrew, who we'll get to in a moment, 10 Assumptions for a New Paradigm, which synthesizes indigenous cosmology, quantum science, and Eastern and Western mysticism into a framework that resolves several paradoxes which have plagued humanity for millennia. Her insights come from her experiences over 20 years with visionary Native American elders, as well as her own access to higher frequencies. Andrew Cameron Bailey is a filmmaker, photographer, inventor, and author. He's a visionary thinker in the realms of human evolutionary potential and climate restoration. He has university degrees in literature, anthropology, and chemical engineering, and has lectured in chemistry and mathematics at the college level. He is the founder and CEO of Sacred Earth Enterprises, an ambitious, I like that, for-profit startup with a global vision for climate restoration. You can all find that information, more about that, at sacredearthenterprises.us. So, I am so glad, Connie and Andrew, to have you on the airwaves of A Better World. It's been a while in the making, but voila, here we are. Good to have you both. Hello, Mitch. Greetings. 
Hi, Mitch. Great to be in contact Hi with there. you. Hi there. Hi there. Yes, indeed. Hey, and I'll be we are at Sun- as well. You Excuse are. Me? We are at Sunrise Ranch. We're at Sunrise Ranch in Loveland, Colorado, and I hear you're going to be showing up here in less than a week. Exactly. I will be wow. arm in arm with you both in just a matter of days. <laughs> so That's I really look forward to, looking it. forward to that. Yes. Yeah. Indeed, me too. We enjoyed seeing you in so, New York. I'm sorry. We enjoyed seeing you in New. We enjoyed seeing you in you in that New York. That was a lot of fun. Was that a beautiful off. day? Exactly. Yes. And we had you here for a Better World TV as well, and uh, we'll do so again. The material that the two of you are bringing forward, Connie and Andrew, is so rich. I, I, I really get titillated, if you will, when I contemplate the, the both the richness, the depth, and the breadth of your work. And uh, I feel that it's been not getting the fullest expression and uh, recognition that it really needs, which is one of the driving forces behind my wanting you on both A Better World TV and radio. And so on that note, I would really love if you could begin to unpack what we took on as a fairly ambitious, talking about being ambitious, uh, subject matter for today, which is to both or all look at – U.S. history through the through the lens that Connie you have been looking through for quite a long time, as well as looking at the subject of consciousness, which underlies all conversations, and climate. Because Andrew, you're doing so much in that space that's very innovative, and I'd love to get around to sh- your sharing a little bit about that as well. But to start with, Connie, if you would just kind of walk us through the discoveries you've made about U.S. history and give us a little insight into what you'd like us to know about. Well, Mitch, uh, Andrew and I, since Andrew and I met, we've been together on this path. I was doing it for some time before him because what I saw through knowing so much, experiencing so much about the Native American way of life and way of seeing and their cosmology, I could recognize in the Mayflower pilgrims a similar philosophy, a similar connection to creator, the God, as they called it. But I could see the similarities, and I could see a whole new path, a whole new story that at the founding of this country, which is the 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 spiritual alignment of the Mayflower pilgrims and the Wampanoag Indians whom they met and lived in peace and friendship with for 54 years. This is key to understanding the role of indigenous cosmology in the evolution of consciousness, which is what uh, my worldview and my life path is all about because I saw through these visionary elders who came into my life, I saw that they were carrying clues to the true nature of the universe, that it wasn't a belief system, that, that they have had something for humanity that we have lost in our evolutionary past when we were, came to experience this scientific paradigm that separated us from the, the oneness and sacredness of all life. So this first 50 years of peace and friendship in Plymouth is a boots-on-the-ground example 
of a synthesis between the European colonists and the American Indian that actually gave birth to the American mind, spirit, and democracy. Because by 1776, by 1776, when we were sitting down at the Constitutional Convention and we'd had this uh, experience with the, in Plymouth, but then also with the Iroquois Confederacy. I was about and to bring that up. In, that was my understanding, yes. Connie, of a large part of the um, Native American indigenous influence on the thinking of uh, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, both of whom learned, especially Franklin, learned Mohawk. Uh-huh. Yeah, I wasn't even aware he had, but I, I do know that he, he saw in the Confederacy, in the Great Law, he saw how to pull together the 13 colonies as independent uh-huh. entities of different sizes. This is what happened in the Iroquois Confederacy, these different sized tribes coming together, uh, these warring yes. tribes. They were, in fact, at yes. war for generations. And this Daganawita, this Jesus-type figure came amongst them and brought a higher way of thinking, a higher way of seeing yes. that allowed them the peace to get figure, up and correct? out. The peace figure. Yeah, the peacemaker. The peacemaker. But this higher way of thinking, yeah, this higher way of thinking allowed them to get up and out of their conflict, their generational, millennial wars, horrific wars that they had been having amongst themselves. And so this is an example of what can happen, what we're we're calling for now is this third great synthesis, the first one being in Plymouth, the first 54 years of peace and friendship between the pilgrims and the Indians, and then bringing in the second great synthesis, which was this Iroquois great law coming into the Constitution. And now what we're seeing is a third great synthesis, that what we're going to do is be coming into our hearts with the Native people to bring something new that's never been on the planet before. So that's that's our vision. Hmm. And and the climate that Andrew is is so um visionarily involved with the climate crisis uh, has is is catalyzing us to that place because we're opening our hearts and our minds to the indigenous people who are the caretakers of the earth. So all of this okay three areas work with are all interconnected because our They're all interconnected, of course, which brings is why in we that cosmology. Titled it so, accordingly. But I'd like to I'm go back and understand I'd like to understand something here, uh, which is sort of a historical note, uh and looking at some facts here because on one hand there was this cosmology, an indigenous cosmology that is also you know what we would we could apply our word of scientific in that it had it wasn't just a belief system you said Connie but there's also an objective reality that is you know essentially quantifiable and measurable but unlike our idea of science which is largely cartesian which is science until quantum physics which is sort of nature is out there and we are separate from sort of in a meta position, uh, you're kind of implying that the native understanding included us, I as in quantum physics, includes our, us as the observer, 
a subjective observer as part of the overall cosmic paradigm. And we have had, you know, needless to say, traditionally left ourselves out of that as though we could just look at nature and look at phenomena through a looking glass, you know, microscope or telescope, whichever the case may be. So could you just talk a little bit about how you know what you know about those first 54 years and the the confluence between the Western European thought forms and those of the native? Hey, Mitch, let me jump in. This is Andrew. Let me let me jump in a little Please, bit. Please, Andrew. Here. Sure. Either, either one. Yeah, the science guy, right. <laughs> we love to toss the ball back and forth. So with yeah, please to do. the, the um, shall we say, the indigenous cosmology factor prior to the advent of Western science, um, everybody on the planet, to the best of my knowledge, lived in a, basically an integrated world where secular and spiritual were not two separate things. And then mm-hmm. with with, with uh, Newton and Descartes and so on, we got into the sort of very left-brain separated mindset where we thought we could be an objective witness to things, like we could step outside of the universe and stand on a scaffold outside the universe and, and look in look and in. figure it out. Right. And we actually had this very strong belief, it's still a strong belief, that we were and are separated from it so we could study it in an objective way. The fact is that's simply not possible. The observer effect in quantum science teaches us that we actually live in an observer-created reality, and that's a whole huge subject unto itself. But the interactivity of that, that people like the Australian Aborigines or the Kalahari Bushmen or any of your indigenous cultures who remain truly connected to nature, know that we are an interactive part of all that is. And we Westerners are coming back around to understanding that actually that is a much larger and more relevant reality than the separated one. So the whole sure. separation of ourselves from nature has put us in a situation where, for example, we'll get to that later in this talk, uh, where, for example, we are really endangering our own species through our um, and modification of the climate of our planet. That's a whole other subject. Well, for sure. Let me go back sure. to the democracy thing, um, Mitchell, because... Yes, um, that's what I was I aiming at. I've, yeah. I have written a recent book called The Mayflower Revelations, which aims to kind of reset the historical record, set it straight, as to what actually happened back... This is 1620 when the Mayflower landed, which will be 400 years ago come next year, 2020. 400th anniversary. Mm-hmm. So it's going to get to the attention of a lot of people, and the history is really mixed up. There's been a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of misunderstanding. I think if you go to Massachusetts, you get a relatively accurate understanding of what occurred in those days. But the, <clears throat> the further west you go, I find the more scrambled. It's understandable. The more scrambled the story is, and the story has mm-hmm. become outrageously um, incorrect historically. And it's, mm-hmm. um, it, it, you know, I really had this sense that this needed to be corrected in some way. So there's a bit of an Right. Well, I, I really correct. wanted to have you both on in one measure to correct the story because you are both additional to so much else, historians of this particular period of time. And, uh, you know, you've done so much research. I, I really value 
what you bring to the table yeah. in this respect. Yeah, so I would say I probably have ever, ever since I met Connie. Connie's a Mayflower descendant, and I had I was aware of the Mayflower. Right, exactly, that's what I was. Yeah. I, I heard of Squanto, the Native American who taught them to plant corn, and things like that I had heard of, but I was not yeah. deeply immersed in it at all. And since meeting Connie back in 2003, I mean, that's 15 years, we're now 16th year together, I found myself reading an enormous amount of the, the written history that we have. Now, we don't have the Native side of the story because we don't have oral history that could have survived for 400 years. It just hasn't mm-hmm. come through to us in any coherent way. So what mm-hmm. all we do have is what was written by reporters on the ground at the time. Those, especially the English, were writers and journalists and reporters who published what they what they observed back in the early 1620s. So we and and we still have those documents. It's amazing. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of history that can be affirmed. Now, obviously, it's from one a one-sided perspective of the English settlers. But there wasn't a war going on. There was no sort of victim perpetrator, victim rights history thing. Um, I think the most important thing for Americans and humans in general to recognize is what occurred at that time. The Mm -hmm. first document of democracy, the first actual, what should we say, roadmap for what became American democracy and Western democracy in general what is something called the Mayflower Compact, which was written in the cabin of the Mayflower on November 11th of 1620 before the settlers landed. They realized that they needed some sort of idea of governance and what kind of rules they were going to run their their community under. And it was very different from what they'd left. They'd left a What's the word? Absolute monarchy. Yes, they left an absolute Absolute monarch in England, that is. Yeah. In England. And that was just the European way. Everybody thought it would always be like that. Now that has changed radically. It was at the time of the first beginnings of of Luther and Calvin (coughs) and that whole movement that totally, firstly, the the, um, back with Henry VIII, um, England breaking away from the Roman Catholic Church. But then the English church wasn't much different. And then in Europe, in, in Switzerland, with this whole new vision, once the Bible was translated out of Latin into the various European languages, everything began to shift. So out of that came the realization that people were to be directly in relationship to God as opposed to needing a bishop or a minister or a priest. Between, as a, as a mediator, a, so as to speak. Church. A mediator, exactly. So that ended up resulting in democracy because the very first document of democracy is people would say that would be the Magna Carta, which only lasted for a very brief time back in the 10 hundreds. I mean, a very long time ago, 1066, I think it was. The Mayflower literally carried the seeds of democracy across the ocean, landed on these shores, and the English settlers found themselves among a people who practice something, something, I think you can use participatory democracy to a certain mm-hmm. extent. The, the Native Americans, actually, while they did have aristocracies, they definitely had inherited um, positions of chiefhood or sachemhood or sagamhood. Hierarchy. You know, and they had the, the same hierarchical system, very, very similar to humans everywhere. 
we somehow found ourselves, you know, there's that that one way of doing business and governing your society. Right. So that that's the way uh, communities organize power, essentially by concentrating it into uh, uh, a male vertebrate at the top. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So. We had that, what Connie likes to call the first synthesis, which was the coming together of the Mayflower pilgrims and the Wampanoag Indians with whom they crafted a peace treaty on the day they met, which was the spring equinox in 1621. And that treaty lasted, it was a mutual protection agreement, if you will. It lasted with great respect on both sides for 54 years. Remarkable. Then once you jump... 150 years into the future, and you find yourself at the um, Constitutional Convention with the participation of the of the Iroquois, and those principles that had been developed by Native Americans, which then also came into the Constitution of the United States. So now you have uh-huh. a seed which had come across the ocean in the Mayflower, took root here, and then blossomed into the Constitution in what was it, 1787, when the Constitution was finally ratified. So there's Mm -hmm. a huge and important Native American component of the founding of this country, the principles upon which this country is based, and which is relatively unknown. I don't think, Mitchell, that is well known. And I think it's important for the, as much as anything, for the self-respect of the Indians themselves, for them to realize their the foundational role they played is a really important thing. Well, I no, agree with that. Haven't. I agree with that. And I I mean, sometimes when we know things ourselves, we sort of can lose track of who knows what, where and when. And we sometimes make the faulty assumption that, well, everybody knows it. And I know that everybody doesn't know it, but I have interviewed um, – Jake Swamp, who of the uh, chief of the Turtle mm-hmm. Clan of the Iroquois Nation, of the Mohawk Nation, and Orrin Lyons um, at a sacred water conference back in Santa Barbara some years back. Uh, back at the time, by the way, you two met, <laughs> interestingly. And, you know, both of them made clear what that relationship was between uh, the Iroquois Nation and influencing some of the leaders in our country at the time, like I mentioned Franklin and Jefferson, to name the main ones, but maybe not only the only ones. But I was trying to just understand, and so I very much appreciate the point, Andrew and Connie, that uh, not enough people know the real history of the role of the Native Americans. What I was trying to uh, learn about, because this is something I knew very little about, uh, which is that first 54-year relationship of peace because my understanding uh, apparently was quite skewed that there were blankets that were infected with various diseases that were actually given to the Native Americans upon the arrival of the pilgrims and that they were maybe being friendly on the outside but were actually warring um, in and all around it. And you're really saying that that was not the case originally. Oh, good heavens, no, Mitch. Uh, that's astounding that, that you have that so clearly in your mind because that's really revisionist history. 
that uh, yeah, that was that's U.S. history as it comes from the textbooks, Connie. No, as that a hasn't gotten upgraded by no. the by the wisdom of the two of you. Okay, but those are textbooks that came since the seventies when this whole hoax of the the smallpox blankets has been perpetrated. Andrew <laughs> will talk to you a little further about that, but it's a complete hoax. It's a complete absurdity. <laughs> and Andrew will talk to you a little further about it. But so one thing I wanted to say, when Please. when he was expressing, he, he was saying that these people were reporters who wrote this stuff. They were journalists. They were writing about their own experiences. They weren't observers. They were experiencing this. Edward Winslow, Direct. who was basically mm-hmm. the ambassador into with the Native Americans, wrote of uh, day by day his experiences. You know, that's not a reporter looking down. So I just want to make that clear that this and this was published, his his journals were published in 1624. And so he and may his have name again, a, Connie, uh, is what? Edward Winslow, and one can access this material in something called Good News from New England. It's a little book, and one can access it online at mayflowerhistory.com. You can go to this source material, Mitch. This is is, is key. One needs to go to source material and, and, and read for the intent, okay? Read for, read between the lines for the intent, For, for what really was meant to be, you know, what people were feeling, what people were experiencing. And when you do that, the word love is on almost every other page, okay? You know, the love that we, uh, Winslow says, when, when one of the Indians asked him, how does he dare come amongst them? Uh, Winslow says, where there is love, there is no fear. And mine own heart mm. is so upright towards you I am fearless to come amongst you. Now, listen, <laughs> is that an, ev- an invading army with smallpox blankets? No. Uh, I mean, that's just such an absurdity. Not that so group. Andrew not that group, for sure. Little, but let no, me ask a practical question. Smallpox blankets. Yes. Let me ask a practical question. The compact was drawn up on board the ship before it landed in Plymouth and what became known, I should say, as Plymouth. And uh, there was a language barrier, of course, between the Native peoples and the arriving English speakers. How did they uh, bridge that gap? And you believe that 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 is not true, Mitchell, interestingly. There was an an English-speaking Native American in Plymouth. It's amazing. It's an amazing story. Let's find out what his question is. Yeah, sorry. Continue, Mitch. No, no, no. That was the question. That was the question. I'd love to have that answered. So do unpack it. Let's go there because that's here's an for our eager audience and me. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, right. The next next thing you know, I'll be saying that the that climate change is a is a Chinese hoax. So please keep going. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'll tell you what. Small box blankets are a a a hoax. So they're hoaxes. I don't don't think climate is one of following up on Cobby's Cobby's comments. Please go Here's on. one of the amazing, most amazing things about the Pilgrim story. They arrived on November 9th. 
they realized that before they went ashore, they had to get some rules clarified. So they drafted the Mayflower Compact, and all of the men on the ship signed that compact, including uh, including um, Connie's um, great grand, uh, twelve times and thirteen times great grandfathers signed that <laughs> Mayflower Compact. Um, remarkable. It's so remarkable. They then went ashore. They sent a shallop ashore with some men to go exploring and look for a place to land. And quite a few adventures later, it was the 16th of December. Of December. Now they landed in in um, November. November they came ashore for the first time. November 11th. They, they they sighted land November 9th. They stepped on shore November 11th I for the first time. They then 11, the So interesting. Mm-hmm. The 11 11. They signed that, the contract that day. They've signed the compact on that day, right. And 11 11, which is a pretty magical day, and it's the day my book, the novel, The Mayflower Revelation, starts on that day, but in the year 2020. And the screenplay starts on that day in 2020. It's 11 11, mm. 2020, and 11 11, 16 20. Mm-hmm. And that's intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, they mm-hmm. landed in, they, they decided that the place to set up their plantation, as they called it. They, they were going to plant themselves in what is presently called Plymouth, Massachusetts, which was then called Patuxet. And Patuxet was the home of a Native American tribe called the Patuxet people, who had been, when John Smith explored in 1614, he reported that there were roughly 2,000 warriors there. When the Mayflower landed there, there were no people there. It was deserted. Are you still there, Mitchell? Oh yes, I'm listening Sorry, intently. Sorry, the phone and was so strange. Okay. No, I'm so, simply no. listening, Andrew. I and so Listen, no one was gonna, there. But I was asking the question about the language. Okay, hang on. Let's get. I'm headed. I'm headed directly yeah. there. But I've you're moving in that direction. From sure. The time, Go ahead. Right from the from the from the time they. From the time they first saw land to the time they first set foot to the time they discovered Plymouth and decided to settle there to the time they went ashore to the time when they met their first Indian was roughly four months. Four months. So there were 102 passengers on the Mayflower. They came ashore December 16th. Not a good time to come to wade ashore, arrive on, on on the beach soaking wet. Half of them died the first winter. They saw no Indians. They met no Indians. There were a couple of threatening appearances. Some Indians appeared and disappeared, kind of scared the hell out of them. And on the 16th of March, a tall, beautiful Native American came striding into town. And the first word out of his mouth, the first two words out of his mouth were, welcome, Englishman, in English. So your oh, is this problem. the story? Let me just ask along the side parenthetically. Do I am I now remembering a story of a Native American who, in a prior trip, was taken to England and learned English, and then came back? Okay, patience. He's 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 Native American number two. Native American number one was from okay. Maine. He had known a lot of the English sea captains up there. He'd learned a certain amount of English, enough to actually get by. And when Mm -hmm. he, and he happened to be visiting, he happened, he was from Monhegan Island up in Maine, and he happened to be visiting down in, in Massachusetts. And I think he was probably sent 
the chief, Massasoit, probably said, and his name was Samoset, Samoset, why don't you go and check up on these people and find out what they're up to? So he comes walking in, confident as can be, walks into camp and greets them, welcome Englishmen. They spend the <laughs> afternoon in what conversation. They learn a lot from him, but there's a real language. There is a language. It's tricky. So he says, listen, I, have an, I know another man who's not far away. I will go and get him. I'll come back in four or five days. And he knows much more English than I do. Four or five days later, he comes back with this guy who we now, through history, we know as Squanto. Tisquanto, who the English called Squanto. Squanto comes back. He had gone at least twice, if not three times, but certainly twice to England. He may have gone voluntarily one time. We don't know. Or he may have been captured. The second time, he was apparently kidnapped by a certain English Captain Hunt who grabbed a bunch of Indians and took them to Spain and tried to sell them on the slave market there. That didn't work because nobody wanted to buy them. And Squanto had already made friends in London, spoke fluent English. Now he's in Spain. He doesn't speak any Spanish, but he finally managed to get himself to, to Newfoundland where he hooked up with an old friend of his, a guy named Thomas Dermer, who then said, okay, I will take you back to Massachusetts, but I've got to go to London and talk to my boss. So it's a long convoluted story. So then, Squanto spent probably two years in London as the guest of a man named John Slaney, detail, detail, makes his way back home, and by the time he gets back to Patuxet, which is where he was from, his people were gone. There had been an epidemic of disease, and he arrived back, and the disease happened roughly four years before the Mayflower landing. So if you want to blame the Mayflower for the disease, they would have to have an incredible ability to send a disease four time years travel. ahead of them through, yes. through time travel because they right. arrived and the Patuxent people were gone. And on the ground there was a guy named Squanto who was about 46 miles away in present-day Rhode Island. So long story short, Squanto Remarkable. Comes, back, he comes along. Yes. He comes along with Massasoit, who's the chief, the Sagamore, of the local Indian tribe who were in – there were none right there but around Mount Hope, Rhode Island. And they sit down together with Squanta as the interpreter, and they're able to craft this a treaty that lasts for 54 years. Remarkable story. So there you have it. There's your language. This, Thank you. total miracle of an, English, of an English-speaking Native American who knew and liked the English showing up. It's crazy. So, Mitch, yes. what can one can watch and listen to if one looks through heaven's eyes from a higher perspective? on the evolution yes. of consciousness of humanity, which is where we mm-hmm. look at things from, okay? Sure. You can see, and if you take the native knowing that everything has a purpose, okay, uh-huh. that, and that's foundational to the native knowing. So if you look at this higher purpose, the native people were, had been at war and were at war with each other, okay, uh-huh. on the American continent, okay? The, the English... We're seeking a higher way, okay? Humanity is in evolution, evolutionary upward spiral. So these pilgrims who saw that we have a right to relate directly to the divine and saw that monarchy was antithetical to the human condition and the human potential, okay? So they make their way here to this land, and they meet... A, a visionary leader, Massasoit, was a visionary leader. He was a different sort of leader. 
and we have proof of that in the writings, okay, mm-hmm. that, that he was extraordinary. So here these visionary people come together on the, on the edge of this wilderness, per se. Um, it wasn't the total wilderness. These people, you know, the native people had been there living. But, but they, these visionary leaders came together, and they kept their people in peace for 54 years. You know, a, a lower frequency leader can, you know, they can go into retribution and anger and, you know, revenge or whatever, sure. you know. But sure. when, you, when you have a visionary leader, and these are exemplars for the future of, of how to lead a people and, and, and stay in peace and have an intercultural exchange and how to learn from each other. And um, so this is, this is what we're bringing forth, okay, that in, in this evolution of consciousness, this was meant to happen. Okay, Squanto had been taken to England. He knew English. He was saved from dying. Okay, he came back. He was there to broker this peace treaty with Massasoit, and he taught the English. The English were farmers, but they didn't know how to handle Indian corn, and and, and Squanto had been watching the women plant the corn, and he knew how to plant the corn and how to put the fish into the ground to fertilize mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. One thing, because the, the fields had been overtilled, and they needed this fertilizer, um, and... Um, because you know, Plymouth had been uh, occupied. So, you know, it's just history is a matter of perspective, Mitch, and we have a perspective that we're bringing to the party that la- allows us to get up and out a victim-perpetrator for the founding of this nation. Many nasty things happened after this, but this is the founding story of a nation, the beginning, a great nation. The beginning story, okay? absolutely. This is the beginning, and it's a gem. It's a beautiful gem of intercultural it sure exchange. Is. Okay, it sure and, is. and this Let me let everybody know. We have to, Connie, just hold on a moment. I want to make an announcement. Mm-hmm. I have to let everybody know that you are listening to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. We are on every week on A Better World Radio. We have Fascinating guests, as you hear today, with ours, uh, Connie Baxter Marlowe and Andrew Cameron Bailey, who are the authors of The Trust Frequency and have done so much groundbreaking work, as you are hearing about the reviewing of the first years of the British, the Pilgrims in uh, America on Turtle Island, and it's a way new way uh, historically based uh, research that they have done and I just want to let you know that you can also listen to us on television in New York City or online every Monday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time just go to our website where you can also get uh, sign up for our newsletter at abetterworld.tv that's abetterworld.tv TV. So now, Connie and Andrew, let's uh, continue this uh, discussion about, I want to bring one other thing up that I'd love to hear what you have to say, uh, and then I would love to be able to pivot into some matters regarding climate and the lack of integration of indigenous wisdom and perspective into our current thinking, at least politically, as the uh, that climate 
uh, dominates the scene in many ways. Uh, but I want to bring a point up that I've heard made a number of times, which is the Iroquois peace table had women not only at the table, but actually as kind of quiet leaders of it, i.e., that decisions were not made among the Iroquois Federation without the women's agreement and advocacy. When it got translated into the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, while Franklin and Jefferson and others took a number of the elements of the Iroquois perspective with them, they did not bring forward the role of women. And so women end up in the Constitution as being sort of less than, I hate to say it, but sort of less than a person, if you can believe that or not. And then they ultimately had to fight for their right to vote all the way as recently as the 1920s with the suffragette movement. Uh, do you want to correct any misunderstanding regarding that or add anything to it, Connie or Andrew? Uh, no, I think you have expressed it uh, very well. Uh, the role of the of the Native women, especially in the uh, Iroquois, is a very powerful role. They actually appoint the chiefs, and they can pull them at any time if the chief goes uh, away from serving the people. Um, mm -hmm. So it's an extraordinary role that the, that the women play. Uh, specifically in the uh, in our knowledge in the in the um Iroquois Confederacy so Among that's Iroquois, absolutely yeah. so and um so interesting so um, we can we can I so that, wish we that, would have yeah. followed that pattern in you know the origins of the United States of America and our government you know, well can you imagine the world we'd have today well yes and it's all a process Mitch and you just interviewed Marianne Williamson, who's who's mm -hmm. really bringing a higher way of thinking, a higher way of being into this process of becoming the vision, actualizing the vision at the founding of this nation, that this nation could actualize freedom, equality, justice, abundance for all, that that mm -hmm. American dream is, in fact, our birthright. It's just that we're... We're in a lower frequency. We're, we have scarcity-based paradigm. We have an old worldview that's collapsing, and we're moving into a higher worldview. And that's what our work in consciousness is about with the Trust Frequency, 10 Assumptions for a New Paradigm, our book. Speak and, about and that, what, please. That what, would be great, Connie, if you help elucidate um, uh, a bit about the book. And the ten yeah. assumptions. Okay, well, I'll make it relevant to the founding of the country and, sure. and to Andrew's uh, climate restoration because the, it, what we're bringing forth is, is that, that the different frequencies have different laws, okay? And we have the ability to shift our vibratory level to a higher frequency and that the earth, in fact, is moving into a higher frequency where we will align with different a completely different reality. And the Native people have been carrying clues about this other frequency and how to access it. And so we, um, and this nation was founded on a trust-based paradigm, okay? 
the, the, the Native Americans have a trust-based paradigm, a creator-based mm-hmm. paradigm. The pilgrims mm-hmm. came over here with a, a, a God-based paradigm, and the Puritans as well. The Puritans were a little more rigid, were a different, different kettle of fish to some degree. But mm-hmm. this creator-based, God-based, trust-based paradigm, the founders of uh, the 1776 founders, if you read their works, it's all, we turn it over to Providence. We turn it over to Providence. We do the best we can, we turn it over to Providence. On yes. our, our coins, we have in God we trust. We okay? trust. So this, these are clues. This is, this is the foundation. We just, it's just been a process to getting there. And now the, the climate crisis, is, is forcing us to see that this is not working. It's universally showing us it's not working, these old, this old paradigm, this whole thing, and that the, the, the indigenous peoples have something for us. Okay, so we're being forced into a higher way of seeing and a higher way of being and a higher way of knowing and connecting to the sacredness and oneness of all life. So it's just a process. And so I think, I don't know how much more time we have, but if you'd like to speak to Andrew, we have 15 more minutes. How much more do we have? How much more time do we have, Miss? We can do that. We can take another 15 or so minutes. Yeah, okay. So let me talk about the so So I just wanted to show you how the work that we're doing is totally interconnected. And, and its, its foundation is, is the role of indigenous people in the evolution of consciousness, what they have to bring to the party, have yet to bring to the party, what they've brought to the party and what they have yet to bring to the party, but also what the European consciousness has brought and understanding and, and the scientific, walking through the scientific paradigm has been key to the whole thing as well. So it, it's all an amazingly beautiful process. It's messy. But it's it's we're going somewhere, and that is to the opening of the human heart and the coming of peace on earth and heaven on earth from our perspective. And so I just wanted to um, tie that all together. And one other thing that the book that Andrew's written um, for the our first fifty years project is mm-hmm. a historical mystery novel. So it's called the Mayflower Revelations. And we have a, mm-hmm. a, an agent in Hollywood for it to become a um, feature film. And a he's just finishing the screenplay. Yeah. And uh, the oh. website for that is um, first50years.us, first50years.us. So people can go and check that out. But what we're bringing sure. with that first 50 years project is this concept of synthesis. This concept that, that this nation was founded by a synthesis between the European colonists and the American Indian. And that without mm-hmm. the Indian at the table, that we're like a three-legged stool missing one of our legs. Because the Virginians brought so much to the process, you know, Washington and, and uh, Jefferson and all those guys. And the Massachusetts folks brought so much to the process from the, from the Pilgrims and the Puritans and all that. And what we're missing is the Native American uh, aspect of well, this um, I want to, uh, founding and I want to of cite, democracy. I'd like to cite the work of Glenn Aparicio Perry, whose work you probably know of. Uh, I He's a good friend of ours. On, yep, we know. Yeah, I would imagine. Well. And yeah. he uh, wrote a book, among several, called Original Thinking. And it very yes. much outlines the science behind uh, Native American 
cosmology and mathematics and science. And uh, I mean, it's something that talk about being unknown. Uh, this is hardly known at all, the level of sophistication, not to mention. So on one hand, you've got the language of science, but you've also got the language of language and the Navajo language, for instance, and others is so sophisticated next to our even very practical and useful English. And so these become revelations to people over time that it is not part of popular understanding, just like you're um, illuminating me about some of the uh, myths that were predominant back at the time of the uh, landing of the pilgrims and, and thereafter. So, too, their level and development of science, mathematics, and language is so beyond the ordinary understanding, which makes the cultural war that the United States government waged against the Native peoples and their culture so, so disheartening for so long with the uh, the schools. Uh, what is the word I'm looking for? The um, yeah, the uh, reservation the, schools or whatever they were. The reservation yeah. schools, yeah. Resident, Thank you. Res, re, no, res, resident. Resident schools. Resident, the residential schools yeah, in both the United Mr. States all and of that Canada. Is tragic. Yeah, it's very, very. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's so let's, tragic. Let's, let's, so stick, tragic. Let's, stick with, let's stick with a positive here in the sense that, yes, there's a horrific history and there's no question. Nobody's denying that. You just mentioned um, Glenn Aparicio Perry. And his book, are you aware of a book called Blackfoot Physics by David Pete? I've heard, but that, I don't have not read. That is very specific. Yeah, that is very specifically when David Bohm, the quantum physicist, got together with, with yeah. um, what's his name? I've um, heard it discussed on a uh, WBAI uh, Native Indigenous yeah. Voices radio show, yeah. Very fascinating. Yeah. Thanks um, for that reference. That, that's, so there, there's been a lot of very good, rather academic, you know, sort of PhD level um, studies done on the actual physics of Native American understanding, and it's very legitimate from a pure, hard Western science perspective. So yes. let's, let's, let's jump yes. off that because we've only got a few minutes here, Mitch. Yes. I do want if to you would segue into what you're doing, yeah, exactly, with the. Uh, yeah. I, would like, I just wanted to be known Carbon. that there is hope that we we have been part of a team developing an integrated system that will make a difference. We are going to succeed. We're up against a lot of challenges, including political challenges, financial challenges. But the, I don't know if you know that, but the Pope just announced a climate emergency this week. Is that something you know about, Mitch? Mm. Yeah, I've heard. And I actually know some of the yeah. people that are working priests yeah. that are working very closely with him on the topic. Yeah. So that so that's so that's a big deal. So I'm gonna jump all the way back to it's the huge. smallpox blanket yeah. thing. I want I want your people to know that the number of people who number of Native Americans who died as a result of smallpox blankets intentionally given to them is a nice round zero. That whole thing is a hoax. There's no not one oh, iota of evidence that anybody ever died. And yet Three out of four Americans, roughly, I'm guessing, believe that that's true. And that's the result of a very successful campaign that came out of Colorado, right where we are here in the 1970s. I'll say no more. But if you go to the novel, 
if you go to our book, The Mayflower Revelations, that is discussed in detail there, and the entire thing is dealt with in no uncertain terms in the novel, okay? It's not in the Wonderful. screenplay nearly as much, but it is in the novel. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a complex story. It was a, it was a, in 1970s, it was a, and we're going to let that go, but I want you to know and your audience to know there were no smallpox blankets. Okay, and I can explain that in great depth to anybody who wants to go deeper. It's a complex story, and I have that stuff, that evidence, ready to go. Secondly, um, the coming of democracy is the important thing, and the contribution of the Native Americans to what became American democracy, as messy as it is, is partly based, and the big, as you said, leaving out the women, the Council of Grandmothers was a big era mm-hmm. that... Um, Franklin, those guys just couldn't even imagine that women could have such sophistication, I think. You know, they definitely mm-hmm. had a bit of a, you know, a superiority <laughs> complex, whatever. A bit of a block. Now, let's, bounce, yeah. let's bounce all the way to climate because we have a crisis on our hands. And the crisis Indeed. is solvable, but it's going to take some serious intentionality. It's going to take a lot of work. It's going to be challenging. It's going to be a lot of fun. I am a chemical engineer by training, and a part of it has to do with chemistry and engineering of getting CO2 out of our atmosphere. We can do that. Mm -hmm. Nobody's ever attempted that before. We have geoengineered our planet unintentionally by burning all this fossil fuel, starting with the Industrial Revolution. We didn't know what we were doing. Now we do know. We've known for 100 years that there was a problem. We have yet to act. The Paris Agreement in 2015, all the countries on the planet agreed to do something. Can you name one country that has a program in place five years later? No, not that I know of. Okay, so once I, and I attend a lot of climate-oriented conferences, always looking for this. I know the problem. We know that we've known the problem forever. We know the challenges. We know the consequences. We know the consequences of inaction. Where's the action? Where are the solutions? Very, very hard to find, Mitch. We were just at a beautiful well, conference in um, in Aspen a couple of weeks ago. I I couldn't yes. find one. Lots lots of little. Oh, was that the one that uh, you were trying to arrange for me to attend? That's the one we tried to get you to come to. Yeah, it was Indeed. great, but not one solution that I can. Yeah, you're free. But you're Andrew, let me interrupt you for just one moment. Take heart, my yes, friend, sir. because I my am. Heart is, my heart is in good shape. <laughs> Through a better world, uh, am doing some. I'm not going to take our time now, but I will tell you offline of, and my audience does know some of the projects we're working on regarding carbon sequestration, and on one mm-hmm. hand, and and renewable energy and shifting the economy in that direction. And sometimes both of these are part of the same companies that are actually doing both. We'll talk about that. I'm interested for our audience to learn about you have a particular innovative technology that you've helped to give birth to. I'd love for you to share some of the specifics about that with us. All right. So the the thing we have designed is, in fact, a building. And it's a building that does anything humans use buildings for, but it does something that no current buildings do. It filters and cleans air. Let's say you're in a polluted city. Once you're inside the building, the air you're breathing is clean and devoid of particulate matter that's going to give you cancer and stuff down the road. Step one. Mm -hmm. Step two, 
the CO2 in that air passing through the building is removed, permanently removed. Some of it through photosynthesis goes into the, the growing of plants and our green leafy matter that is food for animals and humans. And the remainder of the CO2 is captured chemically, is removed permanently, <clears throat> and converted into viable, marketable products. CO2 is actually the trillion tons. If you take the trillion tons of CO2 in, the, in our atmosphere that we have put up there since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, think of that trillion tons of carbon as a miner. It's an opportunity. It's a resource we haven't learned how to use. So we're going to go and capture that carbon and turn it into a series of different usable, marketable things, and there's going, it's going to be profitable. There are those who say, oh, it's going to be too expensive. Oh, we're going to have to spend 2% of GDP and all of those things on, the, on this carbon capture thing. Not what so kind of products are you referring to? So uh, what, what's an example or two of some of those uh, CO2-based yeah. products? No, I'm, go I'm, going, I'm going right there, Mitch. Um, the biggest tonnage, biggest product that humans use tonnage-wise is concrete. And concrete consists of limestone aggregate. And limestone aggregate, limestone is calcium carbonate. You simply take the CO2 in the atmosphere, react it mm -hmm. with a calcium-based alkali, such as calcium oxide, calcium hydroxide. It becomes calcium carbonate, which becomes synthetic limestone, which you crush and make concrete out of, and that does not get into the atmosphere, and it will never escape and never cause climate change. That's one. Mm. You can turn it into mm -hmm. fuels. Fuels are useful. Fuels are useful as long as you don't reburn the fuels and let the CO2 escape back into the atmosphere. So you, I'm, I'm happy to use um, CO2 as a fuel. That's easy to convert. <clears throat> there are businesses that are doing that to sell. It's like Bill Gates has funded a whole big thing out of Canada that's purely creating transportation fuels, it's all 100% going to be burnt and put back in the atmosphere. Net effect on climate is negative, not positive. We mm. extract it and we keep it out permanently. Um, so you can turn it into fuel, but keep it in a closed circuit so it doesn't escape. Just take your emissions yeah, and re recirculate them. And that's, that's doable. Mm -hmm. um, my biggest, the one I'm most excited about, and you can turn it into all kinds of foods and so on, there's that. Everything, we're carbon-based. Mm -hmm. You know, a lettuce, a lettuce is carbon-based. You can make a lettuce out Surely. of CO2 from the atmosphere. And carbon fiber composite materials for 3D printing. We can, oh, we can build yeah. out of carbon from the atmosphere. We've got a trillion tons. That's not a bad resource. When we run out, we'll <laughs> worry about it then. <laughs> How long is it going to take to get there? We can replace, Truly. Mitch, we can replace the concrete industry. We can replace the aluminum industry. We can replace the steel industry, all of which put unconscionable amounts of CO2 into our atmosphere right now, and we can change Truly. that using carbon from the atmosphere. So it's, uh, what an opportunity. I'm just plain excited. Oh, well, I hear that, Andrew, and oh, for good you. reason. Should I mention the website? Oh, please. Would, yeah, so if you simply go to if you would like to. Dot, yeah, www.sacredearthenterprises.us, and that will take you to the website, and that will explain for anybody who'd like to look a little deeper into it, and there's contact info there if you want to be in touch with us. There are financial opportunities here. It's going to be fun. We're going to do all kinds of things. We're even designing a co-housing project that is going to use the Enviroplex as its central feature 
and it's going to be a residential situation with global. We can replicate this thing wherever we go. Using the building so that you were referring to before. Mm-hmm. Yep. That building is partly residential. We can use and we can use it for anything we want, including. But then there's going to be this spiral village surrounding the Enviroplex where humans can live. And we're looking at New mm-hmm. Mexico outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico, to do that. So, uh, interesting mm-hmm. stuff is is unfolding um, since we last spoke, Mitch. That is next so next weekend. Wonderful. I want to hear more about it when we are together, okay? <laughs> because yeah, this yeah. is uh, here, so much here, of what my here. focus is through a better world these days. So uh, yeah, having a larger coherent program, Andrew, is uh, of great, great interest to me, of course. So, Well, this has yeah. been completely titillating, and uh, we did give your website, I did, at the very beginning of the show. Connie, would you... Uh, Give the website of your uh, work with the book and the trust frequency. So if people want to visit, they can. Yes, it's thetrustfrequency.net. And I gave the first 50years.us, first 50years.us. Well, the book is called yes. the, the Mayflower Revelations. The book is called the Mayflower Revelations. They can go for the historical novel on Amazon or the Trust Frequency book. And, um, yeah, it's been a thrill to talk with you, and you're so fascinating yourself. I wish we'd had more time for you to bring in your ideas. Uh, we kind of <laughs> I do it all like the time. Thank you so much, Connie. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, no, the audience gets to hear me speak regularly. I'm you're sorry? Right, but you have so much to bring to, you have so much to, bring to our, our, what we're up to, yeah. and we, we yes, get to learn indeed. from you, Mitch, so... Yes, um, indeed. It, it goes all the sorry, way in a, in a circle, my friends. It's a circle. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, you're so welcome, and I want to just thank you both for the extraordinary work. I really feel that way of what you've been doing for a long time now, and I'm so glad it's coming to fruition, and the thought that this would burst through the Hollywood airwaves is just fabulous. It would be a whoa, true whoa, revelation whoa. among yeah. many, right? Put Just some good beautiful. And this is what exactly, wants to exactly. happen, Mitch. This evolution of consciousness, the opening of the human heart, us coming to understand the oneness and sacredness of all life is a given for me. So it's not yes, like we're fighting course. City Hall. This is what the energies no. want. And this is what, what right. is happening because the That's earth is human in higher intelligence. Yeah. That's what native intelligence, yep. if you don't mind my saying, wants. And it's native within all of us. That. Native within native all of us. Native within all of us. Yeah. It's, a, it's exactly. our true nature. It's the true nature of the universe. We've all been players in this unfolding and this evolutionary upward spiral. And so we just each play our part, and it's what's up. And stand by, folks. You know, Albert Einstein posed, I think, a very important question, which is, uh, is the universe friendly? And everyone gets to answer that themselves. And I say, it's extremely friendly. <laughs> so it's, we need the opening of the heart to uh, continue the friendship. Yeah, well, for us, there it's we only love. It's all love. There's absolutely only love. And Einstein said, no problem can be solved in the same consciousness in which it was created. So up to a higher level of consciousness, and we're flying. Very true. 
Very true. Well, thank you both again for being guests today on A Better World. Connie Baxter-Marlowe and Andrew Cameron Bailey, it's a pleasure. And keep up the good work. And I look forward to seeing you You too, Mitch. We love you, Mitch. Love you, too. Thanks for your contributions (laughs) to A Better World. (laughs) So welcome, my dear. Talk to you both soon. Thanks again. You well. Love you. You too. Bye, Mitch. Love you too. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Oh, I love this couple. I love this couple. They are dynamic. They are just with it. They're on cutting edge. They're part very much of the upward spiral of evolutionary thought and our transition to a higher frequency, which is, of course, the name of their book. So I I so appreciate them. And I've had the joy and pleasure of knowing them for many years in passing. And one of the last times, well, Last time was here at A Better World TV when we spent a day together shooting and talking and exploring. And uh, before that, out in the Chicago area for the IONS Conference, the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And I can't even remember the many times before that, but it's been a, a wonderful intersection of hearts and minds over the course of time. Well, I want to thank all of you for tuning in and being part of A Better World simply by listening and absorbing these ideas, these thoughts, these intuitions, these revelations, this energy. A lot of it, as Connie was reminding us, they both were uh, love energy that's really inspiring. I get utterly titillated listening to people like them talk about the next steps our humanity is taking and we're all in it as reverend jesse jackson said we may have all taken different boats over here but we're all in the same boat now so with that said i want to remind you all that we are a non-profit a 501c3 we are able to stay on the airwaves and to expand our reach through your generous kind donations your contributions, they are tax deductible. And if you have volumes of money or you have a tiny bit of money that you could uh, turn over our way, it really helps us truly every bit. And it's not only money, although money is wonderful, it's also the vote of confidence and the uh, expression of acknowledgement of what it is we're doing here at A Better World that is deeply appreciated and felt directly in the depths of my heart. Very true. If you do not yet get our newsletter, also go to abetterworld.tv. If you want any of our services, coaching, counseling, biofeedback, energy balancing, uh, please go to our website, uh, abetterworld.tv and mitchellrabin.com, but also connect with me directly at mjr at abetterworld.net, mjr at abetterworld.net, or by phone, 212-420-0800. That's 212-420-0800. As well, I love hearing your comments and your thoughts about our shows and any recommendations you would like to make. We also do promotions. That's a large way we have... uh, generate revenue for a better world, people who have books or films or concerts or events that they want to promote here on our airwaves and through our website and social media, we welcome your participation and involvement as well. 
So on that note, I want to just thank you all again. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World, and I look forward to seeing you all next week.